pleasure uh, and a privilege to be here this morning. Let me just say that I love my nephew, uh, Aaron, very, very much, and Renee, and the boys, Samuel, and Caleb, and Micah, and um, how proud I am uh, of you, uh, all of you together. This is a family business, this church business. And I grew up in a family business, a different kind of family business, but I understand how family businesses work. And family is as involved and as invested in this little business as it could possibly be. It just overwhelms your lives sometimes, and it's hard. And I'm proud of you. You're doing it the right way. You're working hard at it. And God bless you. I love you. I'm proud of you. Could not be more proud of you. Um, so, um, I'm going to share this morning out of the book of Ephesians, a third chapter, uh, just a powerful passage, I think, anyway, I, I'm guessing you're going to agree, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, it's prayer. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled in the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immensely more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I just want to lift up three statements there that um, what I feel the Spirit has laid on my heart to say to you this morning uh, are centered around. The first is this, this one early on where he says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. There's a connectedness there. Do you hear it? And then this, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's people. And then this is the, this is the part, because I think this is really hard for us, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I think it's hard for us to grasp that. Don't you? I just think it's hard. And then the last one is, is this one. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Able to do immensely more than we can ask or imagine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
May the words of my heart and the meditations of our hearts be fully acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. One of the things that I love about the Bible is that from cover to cover, it makes one point crystal clear, and like I say, over and over and over again, and that is this, that there are dragons in our midst that have to be slain. And in fact, Jesus draws that internal. He said, what makes you unclean, what undefiles you or what defiles you, what works to destroy you, doesn't come from the outside. It comes, remember this? It comes out of the inside. And he names these things, anger and greed and pride and lust and all of these dragons that are in us that have to be slain. And, and, but here's the thing that, that turns this for me and just draws me deeper into an affection for the Bible is that it doesn't just say they're there, it says we can slay them. We can actually slay them. So, uh, a couple of months ago, after church, Sally and I, with another couple, uh, were going to go to this one restaurant which advertised this plant-based burger that was better for you, better tasting than, and um, less calories, all of that, than a beef burger. And... um, we went there to, to have one. And it's called the Impossible Burger because what I just told you is what, you Iowa folks? It's impossible, right? And they didn't have any. They were out. So the waitress came over to tell us we don't have any. We're out. And the reason they were out is because the Impossible Burger people sold the rights or sold a bunch of their made burgers to Burger King who are going to offer an impossible Whopper. I don't know if that's come to Ames yet, but it's coming. So they, you know, you just can't go out and slaughter a few more cows if you're making plant-based. you got to do stuff in Petri dishes and all of that, whatever's going on there, right? (laughs) True story. That's what's what's happening. you got to, you know, it takes some time to make a a burger like that. So they gave us a coupon, and we sent the coupon in, we'd get a gift. And we thought, well, the gift would be, you know, a meal or a coupon for a meal somewhere. It was a hat. (laughs) And um, it's a nice hat. I like it. (laughs) And, you know, one of the reasons I like it is because it really fits within how I'm feeling about about things these days, because here's, here's what the other thing that I think the Bible makes so, so clear, so wonderfully clear and hopeful, is that God has already made possible that which we believe is impossible. May I say that again? God has already made possible that which we believe is impossible. This little girl that's going to have this surgery, God made that 
which years ago would have been impossible, God made that possible. He did that working through our creative minds, working through the image in us that is of him, of God, to heal, to create, to make things better, to build. That's what God does. That's what God's about. Everything that comes out of the mind and heart of God is creative and good and constructive and healing. Anything else is from somewhere else. February 18, 1965, Jimmy Lee Jackson, a black activist in Marion, Alabama, a veteran, a deacon in his local Baptist church, went to a peaceful rally around voters' rights, and he was called from the herd, so to speak, by state troopers, and he was beat up, and he was shot in the stomach by one of the state troopers, a guy named Fowler, and he died a couple of weeks later. And his death was the catalyst for a March 7 march from Selma to Montgomery by a group of 600 African-American locals and some others who were going to cross the uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge and march to Montgomery. And their slogan was, we're going to see the king. And they took that out of the scriptures. We're going to see the king. And the king was George Wallace in Montgomery. And they were going to appeal to him for voters' rights, to, to actually apply the voters' rights bill to allow them to vote. As he came across the bridge, some of you are old enough to remember the images. If you're not, you can YouTube this. Is that it, YouTube? Close enough, right? You know what I mean? And, and you can find the, the videos of this. And what you'll see is a sheriff by the name of Clark and 200 men that he deputized in full combat gear with batons and tear gas and horses, big horses and dogs. And they go into that crowd. And because the media was kept at a distance, you see it from a distance. You see the smoke and you see the clubs going like this. And you see the horses running through the crowd and you see the dogs and that was on every American television by that night and it changed the course of history in America it's called Bloody Sunday March 7, 1965 who remembers it well Martin Luther King then came to Selma and he he extended an invitation to clergymen all over the country to come and help. In Boston, Massachusetts, there was a man named Jim Reeb, R-E-E-B. He was a Unitarian Universalist pastor, married with four kids, the oldest 13. His wife's name was Maria. And he heard, watched this, these scenes, and he heard the call from Martin Luther King. He said to his wife, I have to go. His wife didn't want him to go. But she knew she wasn't going to convince him not to go. She knew he was going to go. 
So she brought him to the airport, put him on a plane. He flew to Selma, Alabama. And the next day, they, he participated in a march to Montgomery. That night, the ninth, or the next night, the ninth, March 9, he and two of his friends, Olaf Miller and Clark Olson, both, all, both universalist, uh, Unitarian Universalist pastors, ate at an African-American restaurant. After they were done eating, they went out on the sidewalk to walk to the church where there was going to be a rally. And as they walked to the church, four white men came up behind them, Elmer Cook, Stanley Hoggle, Duck Hoggle, and Stanley uh, Portwood. And Elmer Cook had a club, and he two-fisted it, and he swung, and Miller, one of the pastors, saw it happen, he swung it, and he hit Jim Reeb on the temple. And Jim Reeb went down like a rock. And then they attacked the other two, and they kicked them and beat them. And then they left. As soon as it started, it was over that quickly. The two pastors took Jim Reeb up and carried him as best they could to a clinic that served African-Americans, because they weren't allowed to go to the white hospital, because they were supporting the voter rights movement. And immediately they put him in an ambulance and sent him to Birmingham because he had a severe brain injury. And two days later, um, with Marie at his side, he died. Three of the four, Elmer Cook, Stanley and Duck Hoggle, brothers, were arrested and brought to trial. A jury of their peers, 12 white men, took 97 minutes, and it would have been shorter than that, but Sheriff Clark tripped and dropped the Cokes on the way to the jury room, so they had to wait while he got new Cokes because they wanted a Coke before they came out to give the verdict. 97 minutes later, they gave the verdict of, of not guilty. The prosecution, or the defense, their defense argument was an alternative theory to the theory that Jim Reeb died because of injuries Elmer Cook put upon him that night. Here was the theory that the defense attorney put before this all-white male jury. Somewhere between Selma, Alabama and Birmingham, the two Unitarian Universalist pastors, friends of Jim Reeb, beat him to death because they needed a white martyr for the civil rights movement. That became the alternative story that was believed in Salma among the white population and still today among many there. Now, you may say, well, that's plausible. That could have happened. I find it absurd. It's absurd. It's a lie. How could anybody believe that? How is it possible that anyone would accept that? Well, I was raised in Boyden, Iowa, not far from here, really. 
in northwest Iowa. Boyden is a town, or was a town when we grew up, of about 500, farming community. Our family owned a local grocery store there. I was raised to believe that God was partial to white people. And, and even, in particular, white Dutch people. And even more so, white Dutch male people than white Dutch male Protestant people, white Dutch male Protestant RCA people. We had one Catholic family in town, the Zimmermans. Brian uh, was born on March 24, 1948, same, same day as me. We shared a few birthday celebrations together, which was kind of revolutionary for my mom and his mom. Um, Arlo was the town cop and owned the local bar. I mean, what more do you have to say about Catholics, right? I mean, you know, that's how I was raised. So I have that deep inside me. That's never going away. That is never going away. That's a dragon that's embedded in my being. It's there. And maybe you can identify with that. Maybe you can't. I'm not trying to put on you anything. Just telling you my story. Now, my father, our father, was uh, a medic in World War II. And one of the things that we found out later in life was that he was at the liberation of Dachau concentration camp, which totally affected the way he viewed Jewish people. Really revolutionary in his day in our little town, the way dad viewed Jewish people. Our wholesalers were two Jewish brothers who knew about dad. And there was this affection and respect there. And Tony and I were reminiscing this morning about how we just have vague memories of going to the wholesale house and getting new coats. And these brothers there. And mom getting a new coat, which was a really big deal. So that's there too, right? So when we went to Israel-Palestine to work with Palestinians, especially Palestinian Christians, it was the opposite effect. I had to overcome my prejudice that God was partial to the Jewish people over against the Palestinian people. Um, so this writing in Ephesians, um, this writer is saying that God has already done the hard work for us in Christ to tear down the walls that separate us from other people. Now, in this case, it was Jew and Gentile. He has already done the work. He has already made it possible for us to know peace with our fellows, with our neighbors. 
with those who are different from us, whether by sexual orientation or by color or by gender or by religion. God has torn those walls down. God is in the wall tearing down business, not the wall building up business. He's already made it possible. So maybe you remember Peter, the apostle. Well, early on in the story of the Jesus movement, it's a Jewish movement. There's never even thought about it being any more than a Jewish movement for a long time. Jesus came back. Jesus taught him for a while. Jesus left. They're working at be in the church like you guys are working at being the church here and they're working hard and some days are better than others and a lot of days are really hard but they're trying to convert they're trying to bring Jewish people around the understanding that Jesus was the Messiah they were waiting for they're not having a lot of success to be honest and one day Peter is in this harbor town in Jaffa yeah, 10 years later 10 years think about it Ten years later, and he's on the roof, and he has a vision. Remember this? It's okay if you don't. You're in the right place to learn these things, okay? In the vision, a, a blanket comes down, and on the blanket are all these different foods. And, you know, camels and stuff that is not are not kosher. And God says, take and eat, and... Peter says, no, God forbid, I won't eat anything that's unclean. God says, remember what? Don't call unclean that which I call clean. Well, Peter, a little dense like you and me, a little slow. Let's admit it. We know, we, we got, Peter's got nothing on us. He's got to have this happen three times before he has, and then he still doesn't have a complete aha moment because he doesn't know what this means. What does this mean? Well, at the door are these Gentiles from Caesarea, about a day's journey away. They come from a guy named Cornelius, who's a low-ranking officer in the Roman army who lives there. And he had this dream, and this angel come and said, go, send for Peter. So Peter comes, he goes, he goes in this guy's house, and he says, I shouldn't even be here. Shouldn't even be in the house with you. Shouldn't be eating with you. Should not be with you. But there he is. And he tells them the story of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit falls from the sky, falls from heaven, all over these Gentiles. And they begin to have a Gentile Pentecost right there. And the Jewish believers are astounded that this is happening to Gentiles. And Peter says, I see now that God is not partial. Do you see that too? Here, harder here, isn't it? I mean, so what's our work to do? Yours and mine. I think in this moment in time, this moment in our country's history, and this, you know, this moment in the, really the whole dynamics of what's happening in the world, where people are pulling into their tribes and 
living in echo chambers where they're only hearing the voices of people who agree with them. We need to be people that first and foremost are listening. We need to listen first. We need to listen first to each other, but especially we need to listen to those who are suffering, listening to those who are facing oppression, listening to those who have no voice. We need to be listening, and then we need to be speaking. And we need to be speaking in a way that is kinder and gentler. We need to we need to address the hate-filled, hateful language that we're hearing. Thank you for nodding your head, some of you. We need to address that as Christians to say, that's not us. That is not creative. That is not constructive. That is not healing. That is not helpful. Therefore, that is not from whom? That is not from God. That is not of God that cannot be blessed by God in the long run. It just simply cannot. It's counterproductive, counterproductive. And we need to be able to say that in a way that we can be heard, which means we have to be able to address it inside ourselves first so that no hateful speech comes out of our mouth. That's what the Ephesians writers say. The only thing that comes out of our mouth is healing, loving, sometimes strong, sometimes strong, but not hateful, not hurtful. If we're waiting for the political world to fix our problems, it will never happen. Politics is designed to divide, not unite. You're going to see that in just a few months here in Iowa before the rest of the nation sees it. It is up to us, and especially up to us white Christians, to be able to speak into this. So, um, I'm going to wind up in just a few minutes. Okay, you all right yet? We were talking this morning uh, in the sunroom about something I said last night quoting St. Loyola. All these universities are named after a saint, a Jesuit priest, who said that Jesus' definition of sin, and I'm going to change the language because I think it's easier. I'll give you his too, but Jesus' definition of sin is to not care. Jesus' definition of sin is apathy. The Good Samaritan, the priest, and the Levite The sin there is they couldn't be bothered. So if you can, excuse me now, again, I don't really, I'm really not trying to be political here. I'm not. If you could look at that 11-year-old Hispanic girl sobbing because her parents were both removed to be processed without anybody caring for her, And her standing there alone, sobbing, saying, my daddy's a good man, my daddy's a good man, my daddy's a good man, and not be bothered by that, you are sinning. That's sin. 
no matter where you are on these issues, that should bother us. Right? I mean, I think I'm right about that. So I'm just asking you to, to allow yourself to be bothered by these things and wonder then how you can speak into them. There's a happy ending, or not a happy ending. There's a redemptive ending to the uh, Jim Reeb story. Um, Elmer Cook's great-granddaughter, Katie, was a junior in high school when she heard about what her great-grandfather did. And the story she heard from her family was, hey, yeah, uh, Big Daddy, that's what they called him. He was a very mean, he was a lone shark. He beat his wife, he beat his kids. He was not a good man, okay? Um, he, uh, he beat this guy up, but this guy died in the ambulance on the way because his friends did something to him. That story that I just told you, that's what she was told as 11th grader. Well, she, she wasn't just any 11th grader. She was an 11th grader with a brain. She said, ah, that's absurd. So what did she do? What do you think she did, guys? She Googled it. And she read all the stories. And it made her weep. And it made her sad. And she reached out to the Reeb family, this child. She reached out to the Reeb family and Anna Reeb and her sister. Anna became a spokesman for the family, agreed to meet with her. And I'm going I'm to end this by quoting Katie Cook, if I can get this to, to come up and do what I want it to do. Here it is. This is Katie Cook. Great-granddaughter of Almer Cook. <laughs> I know I'm not, I don't think you're stupid. I'm just wanting to make sure you don't miss this because I think it's so powerful. I mean, I just love this. Here's what she said. And I believe that empathy is the greatest human power. To be able to feel for others and relate to them is, I think, the most important thing in the world because it's the only way that we can all share this world because without it, there's just chaos. She's saying we need to be bothered. We need to care. When we don't, we're living in blindness and we're living in sin. She's calling us out. And a child shall lead them. Amen? Thank you for giving me your time and attention. Let's pray. Amen.